Welcome to Highlands Church Audio Sermons. Today, June 27th, 2021, we conclude our series titled Uncommon Joy, the Book of Philippians. Today's sermon, Summary, will be taught to us by Pastor Jeff Stevens. Enjoy. you, but uh, I have been so encouraged through the book of Philippians. Uh, It has brought me, as we talk about, an uncommon joy, a comfort, right, in an uncomfortable world. And we have to realize that we are going to encounter trials, difficulties in life. But Paul gets it across to us here in this book, in this letter, Philippians, of course, brims with some of the most often quoted passages, such as, he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. There's great news in that. That not only did he give you this salvation, he's going to assure this salvation to the point of completion when Christ either takes you home or comes back for his saints. Or to live is Christ and to die is gain. To truly come to a place of comfort and peace that surpasses understanding that even in the face of death, we have nothing to fear. When we begin to realize that when he says, um, I can do all things through him who strengthens me, no matter what the trial, no matter what the difficulty, He strengthens me. He helps me through it. But the portrait of Jesus Christ is a humble servant. And it is this servanthood that serves at the core of Paul's teaching in this letter. Now we live in this world, this fast-paced, fast-food, technology to solve all my problems right this moment. I'm never really fully convinced that technology has made any kind of great advancement other than has increased my workload and accessibility. I remember the days where I could, in fact, not return someone's call. I remember when they introduced that new thing called a beeper. You walked around like deputy dog out there and waiting for, like, okay, I gotta call someone back, but now I gotta find a payphone. Technology rapidly changes. In fact, the other day, my wife and I were having a discussion about um, sonograms, this, this tool that they use to be able to see the unborn child. It's a great joy for us that our daughter Allie and and her husband Sean are going to be welcoming a a new child, and we're going to have grandchild number two. We're excited for this blessing. But in this sonogram that Jill appeared or went with with Allie to, they, they They put it in, for those of you who are old enough and have had children, right, you remember going uh, to hear the heartbeat for the first time. And they take like a gallon of some sort of like jelly and smear it all over the front of your wife, right? And then they take this device and they start searching for a heartbeat. And there's incredible discomfort when it's like, okay, okay, are we going to hear that heartbeat? 
and panic and anxiety starts to press in. And then all of a sudden there's this incredible relief as you hear this boom, 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 boom. Technology today puts your child, unborn child, on camera where there's an instant video and the doctor in this visit said that, that he's sleeping. And then the doctor reached down to her belly and poked the baby and the baby startled <laughs> and woke up. Anyone who can say that that's not a human being in there is out of their mind. The fact that a doctor's poke can wake it up while inside is amazing to me. But the discomfort that oftentimes comes when we have to wait or be patient when we live in this fast food and this fast-paced world, Paul's letter to the Philippians is a letter to the redeemed. He's talking to fellow believers. It's not that we can't take the book of Philippians and use it as true words that will save the soul of a lost person. But the context of Philippians is to the believer. As brothers and sisters, I hope that you have gained much encouragement from this letter. I'm going to break Philippians today into a summarization of four points. There'll be a total of 10 subpoints underneath those four. But I hope that you track as I walk through trying to lay out what Paul has ultimately been saying. And then all importantly, we'll close with the last three verses, Paul's final greeting. But I think when you hear it and see it in summary, it'll bring that final greeting to life so that we can see the beauty of Christ, the loveliness of the gospel. In fact, point number one is the facts. We need to first start with the facts that Paul gives us in Philippians. Fact number one, or 1A, is this. God has a sovereign plan over all things. Brothers and sisters, this is fact. You're going through times of great difficulty. That difficulty is somehow worked into God's plan. God is going to draw you closer to him, and as a result, you will grow in his grace and a greater and greater understanding of who his son is. C.S. Lewis in the Chronicles of Narnia has this great scene where they're entering into the camp. The camp represents the camp of Christ. Aslan, this fierce lion, is sitting there in all of his majesty. And one of the children asks this character, the beaver, is he safe? To which the beaver responds, oh no, no. He's not safe. But he's good. You see, we need to understand that a fully sovereign God is in fact good. God's sovereignty is his absolute right to do all things according to his own good pleasure. This is Brandon Lake started today by saying that God's in a good mood. God's always in a good mood. Because everything's always working in accordance to his plan and his will. 
You see God's sovereignty being his absolute right and good pleasure. We first must understand this fact that there is no distance between an entirely sovereign God and a partially sovereign God. If there is a partially sovereign God, then he is by definition not God at all. God is in control of his creation. When we go through a trial, Charles Haddon Spurgeon said this, when we go through a trial, the sovereignty of God is the pillow upon which you lay your head. Think about that. When difficulties are going on, when the storms are brewing, Jesus slept because he knew God's plan. That he works all things to the good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Paul said it this way in chapter one, verse six. He says, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Because God is absolutely sovereign in his plan that he is working out in your life. He started and he'll finish it. He will complete it. It leads us to 1B. If God is sovereign, then Christ is supreme. We don't use this word that often, supreme or supremacy. In fact, probably the only place we use it these days is on the menu at Taco Bell. The burrito supreme. For those of you who know me, you know that I, I practically cannot drive through a drive through because I get the giggles. I can't even order because so many funny thoughts are running through my head on what to say to this high school kid on the other end. And by the way, welcome back home, high school kids, from your trip. But God is supreme. I'm sure it drives them crazy when I ask them the question. I'm looking at this burrito supreme. Why would you list all of the other inferior product when you have the supreme of all burritos? What can I make for you, sir? You see, supremacy is an important characteristic of who God is, who Jesus is. This doctrine is essential to our view of and our view of the worship of Christ. The supremacy of Christ affirms that Jesus is fully God. Not working his way towards it. He is God. He's not simply a man that is greater than the rest of all other men, like some burrito. But is truly above all creation. And only God can be above all creation. When we start to understand this truth, it is essential to our salvation that our trust, our hope, our entirety of our faith is wrapped up in a supremely sovereign God. Paul said in 3.8, he says, indeed I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, 
For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ, the supreme sovereign God of the universe. Anything else we have in our, in our driveway, in our home, in our 401k, in our hopes of a grand retirement one day is but rubbish in comparison to the beauty and the loveliness of a supremely sovereign God. You can throw it all away and put your trust in him. But see, if Christ is supremely sovereign, what's our requirement? Point two, the requirement. The requirement for us to have a relationship with Jesus Christ is to take the gift of faith that he's given you and fully embrace Christ in that faith. I've said it in past sermons, right? You can't pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. You can't put a jump rope under your feet and lift yourself off the ground. It requires something outside of yourself to leverage yourself. This is the Holy Spirit that dwells in us. You've been saved by grace through faith, not of works should any man boast, but it is the free gift of God, the gift of faith. The problem as we fully embrace Christ in this faith is frankly the battle that we create. You see, because we often don't really appreciate the sovereignty and the supremacy of God. In fact, we keep a little known secret that I'm gonna try and fix things myself. I'm gonna do it all on my own. The battle of faith is that we need to stop fighting his sovereign plan. And we stop fighting his sovereign plan when we accept his plan, when we trust his plan, when we find contentment in his plan. Sometimes people come and ask in James 5 as they're sick and they ask the elders to pray over them. We faithfully do that in hopes that God would show mercy and would in fact save them from dying from the cancer that is eating them alive. I can say through personal testimony, I've watched a man who was on his last breaths with leukemia, and I've watched what God did when he healed that man, and that man, 20 years later, is still alive today, proclaiming Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. But I've also been there when we've prayed over a dear brother or a dear sister, and it's God's plan that that person would come home to be with him. And what's sad is we don't applaud that because we don't ultimately want that. We wrestle with the question, everyone wants to go to heaven, but how many of you want to die? Because the only way that you're going to the kingdom of heaven is through that final test. And no, I don't pray, Lord, kill me today, but I sit there and find myself saying, hey, Lord, if today's my day, then so be it. Your will be done not in fear, because I know my Savior has me. We find ourselves on this road of life, encountering this great pole in two divergent paths, and the sign says, trust God, and the other sign says, please God. And so many brothers and sisters choose the please God path. 
God does not want you on the pleasing God path. God wants you on the trusting God path because when you trust God, God is most pleased in you. Stop trying to earn your salvation and start considering it pure joy as the Lord separates you and makes you holy. Paul said it this way in 3.9. He says, and be found in him. That's so important. How will God find you when he comes for you? And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law on the pleasing God path, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. You see, this kind of faith leads us to a path where we get to experience a joyful, peaceful contentment because God's supremely sovereign and God is supremely sovereign in control of the plan of our life. You see, when we have faith in a supremely sovereign God, the result will be joy or peace or the fruit of the Spirit. Paul said it in chapter four, verses four and verse seven. He said, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. And get this, when we trust in God, when we put our hope and our faith in God, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. That's our hope. That's the pillow of sovereignty that we lay our head on. That even in the deepest and darkest trials of life, I find that the peace of God creates surpassing all understanding of what's really going on because I'm at peace because a supremely sovereign God is in control and I don't have to worry because he is protecting my heart. He is protecting my mind. And this joy and this peace, it frees us. It frees us to walk in a new light, in a new way. Point three, the walk. 3A is walk fearless before all fears. Take your greatest fear and walk straight into it in the confidence of Jesus Christ. Don't turn it into a Carrie Underwood song of Jesus take the wheel. Don't be foolish. But put your trust and your hope in a supremely sovereign God. One that in the greatest of fears and the greatest of situations, I can not only consider it pure joy, but I know that he's going to work all things to my good because I know that I love him and I know that he's called me according to his purpose. Walk fearless before all fears. You see, to be anxious about nothing is to be fearless in all situations. For all situations are still a part of the plan of God. It's the peace of God which surpasses all understanding that guards your heart and mind. And to walk fearless in the most fearful of moments. Paul said it this way in 128. And not frightened in anything by your opponents. 
This is a clear sign to them of their destruction. So not only when I walk firm, when I walk fearlessly in God's sovereign and supremely sovereign plan, not only do I have a peace that surpasses all understanding, I also am making a clear sign to those who are not redeemed, who are not saved, who have not placed their faith in the person of Jesus Christ. I become an example, a model of God's grace that reveals that they don't have that. Have you had someone say to you, how do you remain so calm in the adversity of life? How do you trust so much? I don't. The peace of God within me surpasses all understanding. I put my trust and my hope in him that no matter what happens, he is working all things to the good. It reveals your salvation. And this joy and this peace, not only that, will free us to be, part B here, humbly loving toward other people, counting others as better than ourselves. It compels you this way, outwardly, to love God, to love people. 16th century John Bradford, who coined the phrase, there but by the grace of God goes I. Bradford in the 15, I think it was 1555, was executed. He was burned at the stake alive by Queen Mary because of his faith in Christ. Because he was considered a threat to the security of the nation because he was preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. As they lit him on fire, he sang songs of praise to his Father in heaven, knowing that nothing can separate him from the love of God. Our world says that that's a horrible ending and a horrible plan. Brothers and sisters, that's the supremely sovereign God. Give me an example. Thousands of people came to accept and to follow Christ because they couldn't believe that a man wouldn't scream in agony but would in fact sing songs of praise to his God as the flames overtook him. There but by the grace of God goes I. Any one of us can be that person pushing a shopping cart on the streets. Any one of us can fall to our sin Any one of us, but not by the grace of God, can be anything. But the call of our life is to submit to one another out of a reverence for Christ Jesus. Paul tells us that in Ephesians 5. Before he gets into all the different kinds of relationships, he says, submit to one another and of reverence for Christ Jesus. The call is to do something. Paul says it the opposite way in chapter two, verses three and four. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And when we do this, this joy, this peace, not from selfish ambition or conceit, but by in humility, what comes from it is that we begin, part C here, to pursue a deep, unified mindset among believers. 
to be not only unified on Sundays, but all throughout the week, to draw upon brothers and sisters in our time of need or despair, to pray for one another, to help one another, to encourage one another. Paul's telling us to give preference to your brothers and your sisters, to be unified. He's essentially saying, don't just share the gospel verbally, live the gospel. But do so in a manner that is worthy. Listen to what Paul said in 127. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or are absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. When we do this, we give a sign to other people. We touched on it just a few minutes ago, but point four is what does all of this result in? If he's supremely sovereign, if I step out in faith, if I consider it pure joy, if I walk in peace that surpasses understanding, if I in fact trust and depend upon the person of Jesus Christ, the result is this. It becomes a clear sign of your salvation and assurance that God is with you. And it also serves as a warning to outsiders. People should know that they that if they don't believe in Jesus Christ, their path is leading to destruction. How much do we have to hate a person not to tell them this truth? What false churches, what the occult will do coming door to door at your homes for a lie, we have a tendency not to do for the truth. Right, we laugh the fact that I will follow those who are false teachers door to door correcting what they just said until they leave my neighborhood. But how much do you have to hate a person who doesn't know Jesus Christ not to tell them that they need the Savior? Paul says in 128, he says, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. My opponents want to lead people astray. They want to make the God of the Bible comfortable. They want it to make sense rather than the mystery of faith and trust. They're just like the fast food restaurants. They're just like technology, removing the discomfort of life and making life easy. Just be a good person. That's hogwash. Be a person who trusts in the only thing good that has ever happened to this world, the person of Jesus Christ. Put your hope and your faith there. Like Pastor Thomas preached weeks ago, this isn't about do, this is about done. It's what has Jesus done to set you free from the bondage of the law? I am not saved by the law, but I am saved by grace through faith in the person of Jesus Christ. When we are in fact not frightened, we walk fearless in the, in the midst of our adversaries. We ultimately fulfill the plan of God. 
All these things, part B, 4B, accomplish the final, ultimate aim of everything to display the beauty of the gospel, the supreme worth of Christ, and the glory of God. As Paul says in 420, to our God and Father, be glory forever and ever. Amen. That's our aim. Your chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. The highest purpose for which you can serve on Monday morning is to live your life to the glory of the one who created you, the one who saved you, the one that is completing you till he returns for you. And let him sanctify you. Let him make you holy. I promise you, if you surrender and you submit yourself to that, it's going to be painful. It'll feel like God is pulling you through a keyhole by your feet. But he will reveal to you your desperate need of a savior. Pray that prayer. Hold on because life is going to get crazy when you pray that prayer. Lord, reveal to me the measure of faith you've given me. He will answer that prayer, brothers and sisters. He will show it to you. But know this, part C of the result, it all began with God's grace and peace to you. And we should be encouraged by his grace that is with us as we grow forward. Paul said it this way in verse, uh, chapter one, verse two. He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then in the last verse in 23, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. What encouragement. It's what leads us to the final greeting. Why it's so important in this final greeting. Paul says, greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. Verse 23, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. First of all, the greeting here is plural. Paul is probably referring to the group that he opened with in chapter one, verse one where he says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and the deacons. The first point of a final greeting is hospitable recognition. He's recognizing with great hospitality. He could have said all the saints, but he says every saint. You see, Individuals matter. It's important for us to recognize brothers and sisters, fellow saints in the kingdom by name. When you go to someone and you say to them, Jennifer Codd, Jesus Christ greets you and sends his blessings upon you and all the saints are praying for you. There's more value in that by just saying Jesus greets you and he's praying for you. If you come and you sit there and someone says, Darwin, Jesus Christ greets you, brother. 
He loves you. And he's calling upon you to continue to follow him and trust him no matter what trials, no matter what difficulties are going on in your life. He comes to each person. He says, Jackson, Jesus Christ greets you, brother, and is calling upon you in your life to live for Jesus Christ, to give everything for him, to follow him. Paul gives the recognition by calling people a saint. People that are in Christ Jesus are what's called the holy ones, a saint. Not because of what they've done, but because of who Christ is in them and what Christ has done. He's saying as Christians, we are positionally holy because of the works and the righteousness of Christ. We are in fact set apart and are truly holy in Christ and are being sanctified and being made even more holy. We're growing in the gospel. We're growing in grace. We're growing in our knowledge and understanding of Christ. But Paul also says here, all the brothers greet you and all the saints greet you. And he says, especially those of Caesar's household. What an encouragement. Because here's what Paul's saying. He's encouraging them that his imprisonment has resulted in salvation. Look at it in, in Philippians 1, 12 and 13. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, I'm locked up, I've been beaten, I've been scourged, I'm all these things, has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard, Caesar's household, and to the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Paul's not grumbling about imprisonment. Paul's considering it to be pure joy. And he's leaving the saints with the understanding that no matter what the circumstance, no matter what the difficulty, your job remains the same to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he's encouraging them that people have come to know Christ while I'm here in prison. Paul, of course, ends all 13 letters that he writes in the New Testament with the start with grace to you. And he ends every one of these letters with grace be with you. It's comforting to know that the grace of God comes down and it is the grace of God that started that work and it is the grace of God that will complete that work. Justification by grace through faith alone as it is sanctification by grace through faith alone. It's he who's working out his plan showing that grace that comes down. And if our filter, our spirit filters through this grace, then God himself is glorified. When we look at the takeaway of Philippians, this imagery, this perpetual loop, the inward movement of our heart and the outward movement of love for God and for others, it's crazy. But see, God's grace reveals sin. It not only reveals the sin that I've done, but it reveals the sin I'm probably about to do. 
And it gives me opportunity to repent, to go the other direction, to have faith and to trust in God, to exercise that faith, knowing that James says that I am lured and enticed by my own desires. It is at this moment that God's given me the opportunity to exercise faith and to escape the snare of the devil. And when this happens, I experience joy, an uncommon joy. While outwardly, his spirit, by his grace, gives me the opportunity to see and love and minister to the people around me. And the only way I can do this is if I see others as better than myself. If I die to self and I step out in faith and I rejoice no matter what is happening. I've been praying for one of my siblings for 30 years. Man, there are times that I have no hope And there are times that I say, you know what, Lord? You're in control of everything. And I rejoice over your plan, for you are not only a loving God, you're a just God. As much as I want to see certain people come to know Jesus Christ, I rejoice because God's plan is what's going forward. And my trust is in him. If you walk away from Philippians, I want you to try and remember this. God is the sovereign supreme. And as we fully embrace Christ in faith, we experience a joyful, peaceful contentment deep in our soul that walks fearless before all fears, causing us to be humbly loving towards other people, counting others as better than ourselves while we pursue a deep, unified mindset among believers. This reveals a clear sign of our salvation and a warning to outsiders. This accomplishes the final and ultimate aim of everything to display the beauty of the gospel, the supreme worth of Christ, and the glory of God. This work that he began by his grace and will complete by his grace. It manifests in us an uncommon joy in times of suffering. It manifests an uncommon joy to be a simple servant of the kingdom of God. It manifests an uncommon joy in our faith, our desires, our expectations. It gives an uncommon joy in lieu of anxiety. This joy, this uncommon joy, is only for the redeemed. It places upon us an urgency to share the gospel and to God be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Right? Amen.